Well, good evening, friends. It's good to see you this evening. I know most of you, if you don't know me, I'm Ben Marquez. I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Eastminster, and so um, I get um, to come and uh, preach this evening. And so if you have a Bible, you are free to open it up. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we are going to be in Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 20. So here are the words of the Lord. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you will not torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When, Jesus came to, <clears throat> when, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him go, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, only you, Lord, the one who has been granted all authority and power, can deliver, can deliver us from our bondage to sin and evil. Only you, Jesus, can deliver us from the grip of the enemy. And so we ask your Holy Spirit now to grant us understanding in our reading and in the preaching of this text, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't this an interesting encounter? 
I'm sure if you've been around church a lot of your life, you've probably read this. There's a lot of questions. What about the pigs and all sorts of things? And um, we're going to look at this text, but I want to remind us, um, this text is actually recorded in the three synoptic gospels. You can find this encounter in Matthew chapter 8 and also in Luke chapter 8. But though Mark's gospel of all the gospels is the shortest, he devotes most of his time to this encounter. He gives us roughly 20 full verses. This is the longest account of the other two accounts found in Matthew and Luke. And when I come across things like this when I'm reading scripture, I always just, I just always, the Lord is just giving me this mind to ask why. Uh, not because not I doubt things. I'm not really a doubter. I just, I'm just like, I, I need to know. I want to know. And so um, let me remind you of who Mark is who wrote this gospel. Okay, because uh, anytime you read an ancient text, you want to ask the question, who wrote it, who is he writing it to, and why? This helps to um, ask, uh, satisfy some questions that we might have when we come to uh, the text of Scripture. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. He didn't uh, witness Jesus' life and ministry. But Jesus, I'm sorry, but Mark was a disciple of Peter. In the early church, there was a man who was an apologist, which means he was a defender of the faith. His name was Justin Martyr. And he said that the gospel of Mark was um, St. Peter's memoirs. And uh, the early church father, Irenaeus, said that Mark was a disciple and basically a scribe of Peter. And we know this because even in Peter's own letter, if you read Peter's first letter, At the end of his letter in chapter 5, Peter says something interesting. He says, she who is in Babylon, and this is Peter's way, I think, of saying the church who is in Babylon, and Babylon is a cryptic reference to Rome where Peter is at. He says, she who is in Babylon greets you, and then he says this, and so does my son, Mark. And so Mark's gospel is basically... Peter's words and writing that Mark wrote down. Now, this is important because when Peter says that he was in Rome, we have to ask, who who was in Mark's mind when he was writing the gospel of Mark? Who was he going to give it to? He was going to give it to Christians who were in Rome, I think, at the time. There's a lot of hints and clues as to why this is. But one of those hints and clues, uh, Matt, last week at the end of his sermon... Remember when the disciples had just seen Jesus calm the storm and they get out and and they're like, who is this guy? Even the wind obey him. Even the wind and sea obey him. It's interesting to me that when you look at Mark's gospel, Jesus and authority have this, uh, seem to be at the forefront of Mark's mind. And here's why I think so. If Mark is going to be writing to Christians who are not Jews, and these Christians are in Rome, the Roman Empire is the authority. This is the world power. And the reason I think that Mark has such an emphasis on authority and power of Jesus And the reason he devotes a lot of time to um, this encounter with the demoniac 
is because I think he wants to show those early century, first century Roman Christians that Jesus is like the Roman Empire. He goes into territory that doesn't belong to him to overcome the powers of evil and to subdue them. And so I think for early Christians who might have uh, endured some suffering perhaps under that Roman rule, I think P or, uh, Mark is trying to encourage those Christians, and this is why he devotes so much time to showing the believers in that first century of why Jesus is so powerful. And so what I'm going to do as we go through this text, I'm going to ask five questions because that's just the guy that I am. I'm always trying to figure things out, okay? I'm going to ask five questions and we're going to look at the text and I hope to let the text answer the questions that I've come up with. And they're very simple. So the first question regarding the story we just read about Jesus is where did Jesus go? I think in this text, there's two sets of indicators that tell us where Jesus is. Two of them are pretty plain. They went into the region of the Gerasenes. And then at the end of the passage, we find that this man goes back to the place where he was from, which was the Decapolis, which was the ten cities. These were not, uh, this was not Jewish territory is what Mark is trying to tell us. The second set of indicators about where these people were is this man, where did this demoniac, where did he live? In the tombs, okay? This, this doesn't make sense if you're not a Jew. Um, if you came in contact with a corpse as a Jewish person, you would have been pronounced unclean. Okay, And so they were in an unclean place, and the second um, indicator that they were in an unclean place is the hillside. What kind of animal was there? Pigs. Pigs were unclean animals. So Jesus has a really good way of making his disciples very uncomfortable. Okay, And so we learn that Jesus goes to a place that is inhabited by Gentiles, which means it's inhabited by people who are unclean. A number of years ago... Um, my, grand, my grandparents came to visit us, this gosh, maybe six to eight years ago. Um, this is my mom's parents. Their names are Alfonso, who we call Grandpa Chaco. I don't know how he got his nickname. And my grandma's name is Rosalia, but we call her Grandma Rosie. I call her Grandma Rosie. Well, one night, me and Grandma Rosie stayed up uh, around the kitchen table, and she just shared with me uh, a lot of her history and her past and where she grew up. They live in a little town in New Mexico called Deming, New Mexico. It's wonderful. You should not try it. Um, that's where my parents grew up. Well, anyways, just north of New Mexico, about 45 minutes to an hour, there's a number of little tiny towns, Bayard, Central. There's a place in New Mexico called Truth or Consequences. Um, my grandma grew up in these areas, probably in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s when she was younger. And she said, you know, Ben, um, there was... In that day, there was two, two areas of towns. Well, the Chicanos lived over here, and my grandma was in the Chicano side of town, and, she, and the Anglos would live over here. And she says, you know, it was just the day, she says, we weren't racist, but if an Anglo came to the Chicano side of town, we were like, what is that Anglo doing? And she said, and if we had to go to a store on the Anglo side of town, the Anglos were, were thinking, what are the Chicanos doing over here? Okay. And she says, that's just the way it was. Because of sin, anything that doesn't look like us or doesn't think like us or doesn't act like us, we have a tendency to be, makes us a little insecure, makes us afraid. And so when I ask the question, where did Jesus go or where will Jesus take us? He takes us to places that make us uncomfortable. This is what Jesus does. He's good at it. 
And so he's shaking up his disciples a little bit. He's going into a place that's not the Jewish territory. He's entering, if he was Anglo, into the Chicano territory. And people are wondering, what is this guy doing here? Okay. And so where does Jesus go? Well, he went to this Gentile place that was unclean. Okay. And that's where he goes. He enters into places that you and I think to go to, and he enters into places that you and I usually don't want to go to. Okay. So that was the first question. Where did he go? The second question is, why does Jesus go? Why does he go into these places? Look at verse 6. When the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of God Most High? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? Let me stop there. So in asking the question, where Jesus goes, now asking the second question, why does he go? Why does Jesus go? Jesus goes to confront evil. He goes to confront sin. And this is a very interesting episode because it's like this man, because he is inhabited by demons, has a split personality. Jesus, I think, at both times is talking to the demon and to the man. And let me explain what I mean. So, of course, the demon recognizes who Jesus is. Anytime a demon says something about Jesus, they have a really high view of Jesus. They know who he is, and you can see the demon um, is in terror. And, and if you don't know much about demons, they're just fallen angels. If you don't know much about fallen angels, fallen angels have no hope of redemption. Jesus did not come to save them. Once they fell, they fell, and they are consigned to an eternity in hell. And so he knows this, and this demon thinks his time is up. He's inhabited this man. And so Jesus, according to, to Mark here in verse 8, he has already told the demon, he has already started the confrontation with evil. He says, come out of that man. Now, the way the text reads, when Jesus asks the next question, what is your name? I'm conflicted. Because a part of me thought that Jesus was having a conversation with the demon, but I think Jesus is actually having a conversation with the man. And commentators are split on this, just so you know. I've changed my mind on this, and I think Jesus is actually asking the man his name. He's not asking the demons their name. And if Pastor Stan says something different on Sunday, Pastor Stan's right. I don't know. He's going to preach this text on Sunday, but nevertheless, commentators are split on this. But here's what's happening. Jesus has already confronted the evil of this demon, this demon who is inside this man, and he has already told him to come out. And then Jesus says, what is your name? The Bible has an interesting relationship to names. If you remember in the Old Testament, remember Jacob is wrestling with this man all night, which we think perhaps was the pre-incarnate Jesus. And as, day, as the day is coming, um, uh, the man whom, Jesus, or whom uh, Jacob is wrestling is walking, trying to walk away, and Jacob won't let go of him. And Jacob says, don't leave. until I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And then the man asks Jacob just a very simple question. What's your name? 
It's a very easy test to pass. But if you know Jacob, years before, he was standing before his biological and his earthly father, pretending to be his brother Esau. And his father said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm Esau. Do you guys know what Jacob's name means in the Hebrew? Deceiver. So when the man who is wrestling Jacob says, what is your name? God is saying, confess to me who you really are. Tell me who you are. You lied to your father, your earthly father, but you can't lie to your all-seeing father. And so he says, I'm Jacob. And then what did the man do? He changed Jacob's name to Israel. Do you know what Israel means in the Hebrew? One who strives with God. And so what I think is happening in this episode with the demoniac, I think Jesus is reaching into the humanity of the sinful and broken man and trying to touch that part of him to to make this separation between the demon and the man. He has already called out the demon and the demon's resisting, and now he's talking to the man. This is what Jesus does. Remember when he healed the leper, he touches them. He, He gives them a piece of their humanity back. This is what our Lord does for us. And so... I think Jesus is saying, what is your name? But of course, because demons are like little children who don't listen and interrupt all the time, Legion is my name. There's many of us. And they begged Jesus. And you see, again, here's Mark writing to Gentile Christians in Rome, showing them of the authority, these demons who have supernatural power to to a degree, are afraid, and they're begging Jesus. Don't send us out of the area. Here's another one of those questions. Why Why don't they want to be sent out of the area? And I think it's very practical. Pastor Stan has shared with us at times, he he will always say, Ben, demons, they love filth. And I think that Perhaps that Gentile area had opened themselves up more to demonic activity, and this is true. Dr. Hank here on staff has shared some of those sentiments with us. He has shared with us that in the past and in his history, he would say that people who are bona fide, demon-possessed, oftentimes in the history of their life, they have opened themselves up to that work. And I think this is part of the reason why the demons don't want to be thrown out of the area. This is an area where they're just free to roam because there's probably a lot of idolatry going on and this is a place of filth. But the demons don't care about the Gentiles either because what do they do? They enter into this herd of pigs and they rush down because they want to cause destruction wherever they go. They don't care. And so the second question, why does Jesus go? To confront evil and sin. Why? So he can overcome and defeat it. The third question, what is the consequence or what is the result of Jesus' confrontation with evil? What is the result of Jesus' confrontation with evil? When I read this text, and I've read it in the past, it always makes me think of um, a kid named Kenny. Um, I entered into uh, ministry um, about 17 years ago, February 1st, 2003, was my start in full-time ministry. And in that year, I met two kids, Kenny and Dylan, and they came to my youth group. Kenny and Dylan were these two little scrawny white kids, and I really liked them because they were really easy to be around. They were kind of on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, um, and they didn't have anything to prove to anyone, and they just thought I was a cool guy. 
And so I got to know Kenny and Dylan, and we took them to lunch, and I took them to lunch, and they came to youth group. They didn't even come to our church, but I would visit the middle school campuses, and we just became friends. Well, one night I was taking, I always took Kenny and Dylan home, and we dropped Dylan off, and I took Kenny to this little apartment complex on that side of town, and um, I said, Kenny, you want me to just wait here to see if your mom lets you in? And he pulls his little lanyard off, and he has a, he has a, little, he has a key, and he says, no, Ben, it's okay. I have a key. My mom's probably strung out anyways. And then about a month later, I was talking with Kenny after youth group. We were playing. We had a GameCube, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. Um, and um, we were playing, and then Kenny and I got to talking, and, and he had showed me his wrist. He had a number of cuts on his wrist. And I said, what happened, Kenny? He's like, oh, I just cut myself. I'd never heard of cutting before. I'd only heard about it in a passage like this. And I said, why do you do that, Kenny? And he just says, I don't know. It just kind of feels nice. And of course, as I kind of grew in my understanding and knowledge is that Kenny had a pain deep in his heart that only could be relieved and alleviated by cutting himself. I don't know where Kenny is. He's probably now in his 30s. It's kind of crazy how time moves on. Um, But when I think of this account, what is, what is the result? What, is the, what happens when Jesus confronts evil and, and sin? Well, if you recall what was going on with this man, he lived in the tombs. If we were to drive by a cemetery and to see a person living there, we would all be struck like, this is a little weird. Uh, this was a man who, in the other records of this account, he was naked. This was a man who was bound, couldn't be bound by change. This was a man who would scream in torment. This was a man who would cut himself. And what's the result when Jesus deals with it? Jesus alleviates his misery. Jesus sets him free. Jesus delivers this man from the sin and the evil that had come upon him. And this is what happens when Jesus confronts sin and evil. Question four, what is the response of people who have not received mercy? If you look at verse 14, when this whole episode happened, those who were tending to the pigs went into the town and countryside and said, look, guys, Jesus is bad for the economy. 2,000 of our pigs just went into the ocean. Well, they go in. People want to come back and see. It's kind of like a car wreck, and everybody's a rubbernecker trying to figure out what's going on. And so they see this man. He has clothes on now, and he's just sitting there. And it says he's in his right mind. And then it says this. This is interesting. This is the counterpart to what Matt shared when the disciples, the disciples were almost more afraid now of Jesus than they were of the storm. And these people who have not received mercy, Mark records, they were afraid too. Everybody's afraid of Jesus. But the way people who don't have the mercy of Jesus and the way the people who do have mercy of Jesus were afraid for different reasons. And so these people, who, who are afraid of Jesus, these people who have not received the mercy of Jesus, what do they say to Jesus? Get out of here. You're inconvenient for us. We don't need you. You're interrupting our life in such a way that we just can't handle it. Get out of here. Friends, people do reject Jesus. It's an unfortunate and a sad reality. These are the people who have not received his mercy, and they don't want him around because he's too disturbing to them. Jesus lived in a culture that wasn't very sentimental. The people didn't come around and cheer Jesus on like, way to go. This guy's doing good now. He's in his right mind. He has clothes on. I can bring my kids around here now. No. They want him out. Which leads us 
to our fifth question and final one. What's the response of those who have received mercy? I think my favorite verse is verse 18 in this little passage. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. People who have received the mercy of Jesus just want to be with him. They want to talk with him. They want to rest in his care and his comfort. They just want to go with him. If you've received the mercy of Jesus, you just want to be with him. There's no one else you would rather spend time with. And so people who have been shown and received the mercy of Jesus want to be with him. But something else comes. Jesus, uh, he's, a, he's like a good dad. And good dads have to tell their kids no sometimes. My kids are right there and I'm just looking right at them. <laughs> Jesus says, he's not going to let him. And he says, I want you to go home to your family. And I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, this area of the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. It's amazing. When Jesus was in their presence, they weren't amazed, but now when this man goes to tell them, they're amazed. But the people who have been shown the mercy of Jesus, they want to be with him, but they also want to do what Jesus tells them to do. This is who we are as Christians. This is who we are uh, as those who have been shown mercy. If we say, Jesus, can we do this? And he says, no, I want you to do that. I want you to go over there. Then we say, okay. Because he's already proven to us that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he has alleviated us of our misery. Some of you know, um, I grew up in a loving family. Uh, I grew up going to church. Uh, I grew up going to the Catholic church um, I wouldn't say that my faith, that I realized the mercy of Jesus, um, somewhere between my senior year of high school and the following year. And I think kind of the, the pivotal moment that began to start this, um, me seeing the mercy of Jesus, was um, at confession. If you grew up Catholic, maybe your mom forced you to go to confession, I used to tell mom we go to confession when she feels guilty because I never felt guilty. But this time was different, and I remember it because it was just a few months before I met my wife. Um, this was a time where a number of the churches in our diocese came to our church in our little town, so there was about four or five priests there. And um, I was a little nervous because I was really planning on telling the priest something that was bothering me, my sin. And, and this had never overcome me before. I'd been to confession before. I, I knew how to lie really well. And so anyways, um, I got in the line of Father Steve. Father Steve was my parish priest. And um, I had a, a good relationship with him. I was uh, going to our youth group for a number of years. And so it wasn't in the main uh, sanctuary. It was in our church. There was a cry room off to the side, and Father Steve went over there. So I went into his line. And I remember, because I stood right before Father Steve, and and he could tell I was nervous, and we were friends, and I had never gone to confession with Father Steve before, and I had shared with him some things I'm obviously not going to share with you because I was embarrassed about him. And um, Father Steve looked at me, and he says, Ben, I just want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ forgives you. And I remember it till this day, because I think that was the day of my journey where my faith began to start being alive. 
And this I know because a few months later I met this woman and we went on our first date, May 3rd, 1997. And in that year, she had invited me to her church and she introduced me to a man by the name of Paul Cooper who spent the next five years showing me how to follow Jesus. This is the mercy of Jesus in my own life. And every day his mercy is new. Every day I confess to him a different sin and every day he says, Ben, you're mine. Now go do what I've told you. Tell the people at Eastminster that they have been shown mercy. Friends, this is what Jesus does. This is who he is. This is why he came into this world, so that those of us who have received his mercy would go to our homes, to our workplaces, and even with each other to declare to the world the mercy that he has shown us. This is our God. And so just as we sung earlier, go tell it, go scream it, that he is God and that he has shown us mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. (laughs) We thank you for sending Jesus, the one with all power and authority, the one who confronts evil, the one upon whom all evil and your justice was flung on. Jesus, you have shown us mercy. And all we can say is thank you. Holy Spirit, I pray that everybody in this room tonight would recognize and know and be able to articulate the mercy that you have shown them so that we could go into the world, into our own homes, into our workplace, simply to tell others, not of how good we are, because we know that's not true, but how good you are. This is how the mission of Jesus has moved forward. Lord, when we are just faithful to not trying to cling to you as this man who had been shown your mercy was trying to do. We get that, Lord, but help us to obey you when you tell us to go. Go over there and tell others of my great mercy. And we ask that you would help us to do that which you have called us to. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.